played uh, at a time in Viking history, though, there were a lot of players that were in the limelight, and and they should have been. Uh, a lot of you remember Fran Tarkenton, who was a great Hall of Fame quarterback. In fact, it's interesting that uh, my rookie year was the year that Fran came back to the Vikings. You might remember he played initially with the Vikings. He was on the original Viking team in 1961, uh, played five years, and then went to um, New York and played with the Giants for six years and then came back to Minnesota in his 12th year, which was my first year. So I got to uh, spend, I think, the, I think he played seven more years, if I'm not mistaken, and played with him for those seven years, and we did go to three Super Bowls during those years. Uh, Fran was a great quarterback, needless to say. He was a guy with uh, limited arm strength, uh, tremendous mind, you know, and I was talking to a couple of you earlier, and I think we were saying that, number one, the quarterback is the most important player on a team. Uh, it's amazing how good you can be when you have a quarterback. I mean, just look at the Indianapolis Colts this year. If you think that's not true, you know, a team that just a couple of years ago was in the Super Bowl and all of a sudden they can't win a game when their great quarterback Peyton Manning is out. So the quarterback is a huge asset to a team. I mean, you look at the Packers success this year and I don't doubt that without Aaron Rodgers, they would uh, they'd probably still be winning, but certainly not like they are today. So quarterback is huge. And Tarkenton not only was a great quarterback, but a great leader as well. He was a tough-minded guy. He got a lot, you know, the most out of his players and had some great players around him, too. A year after I was drafted, Chuck Foreman came the next year. And, of course, Chuck was a tremendous uh, running back. He played fullback, uh, which in our offense was the guy that carried the ball most of the time. And uh, another, you know, guy that was a perennial pro bowler and probably not a Hall of Famer like uh, Fran, but but still an outstanding quarterback. Ahmad Rashad, a wide receiver. I played against him at uh, University of Oregon. I played at Stanford, and we had some battles with Oregon. Ahmad was my year, and we had uh, picked him up, I I believe, uh, from Buffalo, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, when I played against uh, Ahmad Rashad, he was Bobby Moore in high school, but now he was my teammate uh, for the several uh, Viking years. Ron Yeri, a great uh, All-American, in fact, a number one draft pick, uh, a big offensive tackle from USC, uh, the very first guy taken uh, the year that year of his draft. And so these were some of the offensive players we had, to say nothing of the great defensive players, Alan Page and Carl Eller and Jim Marshall and Paul Krause and many of the others that, uh, that I was privileged to come and be a part of. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't know a lot about the Vikings and uh, didn't, you know, and, in my day back in the 60s, you know, the, there were football games on television, but not like today. You, you just, today you have access to every NFL game and particularly with some of the, the uh, cable channels. And if you want to pay for it, you can literally get every game. You can watch every game. Well, that wasn't the case back in my years. In fact, more of the games were regional. And so uh, I didn't get a chance to see a, a whole lot of uh, Minnesota play. I remember seeing them in the Super Bowl a couple years earlier. But when I was drafted in 1972, I'll never forget the phone call I got. The man was Jim Finks, and he said, uh, in fact, I was, I was with uh, some roommates out at Stanford, and we had a house we rented just off campus. And uh, the night before the college draft, uh, my roommates, we all had a little pool as to where I might be drafted. And uh, 
And, you know, we, taught, we looked at a lot of the teams in the National Football League. I think there were 26 at that team time, and we ranked them 1 to 26. I'll never forget that voice on the other end of the phone when I heard this uh, fellow Jim Fink say, Jeff, this is Jim Fink, general manager of the Minnesota Vikings. Congratulations, we've taken you number one. And I thought to myself, Minnesota. Now, where did Minnesota fall in that theoretical 1 to 26? You know, it was toward the bottom. And it was not because I had anything against Minnesota. In fact, I was actually born in Rochester, Minnesota. My dad was doing his residency at the Mayo Clinic and had me. I spent my first two years in a Quonset hut in uh, Rochester and then moved back to California, where I grew up in Bakersfield, where my dad had, uh, was my father's hometown. So here I was, you know, now drafted by the Minnesota Vikings. And I was to find out later that actually the Vikings were a great place, not only to play, and, but to live, too. And that's where we've raised our family and, of course, uh, where I lived for, uh, uh, played with the Vikings for 11 years and then have been there ever since. But uh, a great, great place, a great, great part of the country, by the way, as well. I've enjoyed uh, pheasant hunting trips periodically to South Dakota over the years and uh, hunted once with Bud Grant. I know he's hunted a million times, but I got one of those hunts with him. And Wally Hilgenberg, my, my good friend, who now passed away a couple of years ago and a very uh, committed uh, follower of Christ and a brother in Christ and a, and a great teammate and friend. But uh, I remember years ago, one of a, a significant uh, game of ours. In fact, uh, it was my rookie year of all of all times, and the Vikings uh, had a lot of expectation that rookie year. In fact, just as I said, the year that Fran Tarkin came back to the Vikings, uh, just a, a two years earlier, the Vikings had been in the Super Bowl and were upset by uh, by the Kansas City Chiefs. Everyone thought the Vikings were going to run away with it, but they didn't. But still, the nucleus of that team was still was still present. In 1972. And I came kind of as a green, wet-behind-the-ear rookie out of Stanford. Uh, Lonnie Warwick was the starting middle linebacker at that time. And it was expected that, uh, you know, I would uh, take my place as a backup and a special teamer. The guy that would go down on the suicide squad, you know, that's on the, on the kickoff where you fly down the field as fast as you can and throw yourself into the human wedge coming the other way. Um, so this was the kind of the uh, undignified role I was going to play that uh, rookie year as a Viking. But uh, we, I knew that Bud Grant very seldom would play a rookie. So even though I had a veteran in front of me in Lonnie Warwick, even if, uh, even if I you know, could, uh, could battle Lonnie and, and really contest him for that position, that Bud would inevitably, he would opt for the veteran. And he probably should have. He was very much a veteran-oriented coach. So I knew that it was unlikely that I'd get much of a chance to play that rookie year. Well, little did I know, in the sixth game of the season against the lowly Chicago Bears, uh, Lonnie Warwick uh, hurt his knee, and they hauled him off the field. And guess who went in to replace him? You know, that green, wet-behind-the-ears rookie out of Stanford, Jeff Seaman. And, uh, and yet I was one who felt like I could rise to the challenge and and, uh, you know, God had given me some gifts and skills. I had some great players around me for sure. And even though I was going to make some mistakes as a, as a rookie, um, I was going to do the best I could. And, and I did. Now, that, game, that season was a, a difficult season for the Vikings. Many felt this would be uh, maybe the best team the Vikings had ever, ever assembled. And they had many good teams up until that time. I think started winning uh, Central Division championships, if I'm not mistaken, in 1967. 
67, 68, 69, 70, 71, if I'm not mistaken, all five years. In 72, now we had Fran Tarkinen back, and uh, many felt that this was going to be a great, great uh, season and, and certainly something close to a uh, maybe a Super Bowl season. Certainly it would be a, a year we would go to the playoffs and win the Central Division again. But things started off on very shaky footing that year. In fact, the very opening game of the season, we were playing uh, the, we were playing the Chicago Bears and, uh, and ended up losing a, a close game to them. And it wasn't long before that we were playing the Washington Redskins at home and uh, had a punt block, which they recovered in our end zone. And we kind of fumbled a couple balls away. And, and we were losing games just by a point or two. And inevitably losing games uh, because of our own uh, stupidity, you know, own uh, uh, penalties and mistakes and so forth. And this was exactly the opposite of Viking football under Bud Grant. Bud was a stickler about mental mistakes, and the Vikings were accustomed to not making mental mistakes, but for some reason, in 1972, early on in the season, we did. And and after that uh, sixth game of the year, we had a team meeting, and by now the Vikings were two wins and four losses. And the central division title, or or the the opportunity to win the division, was slipping away from us very quickly. So we had a team meeting. We excluded the coaches. We were going to try to, to somehow see if we could get this ship turned around and recover the, the edge that, that uh, used to personify Viking football, rediscover those missing ingredients that were not evident that uh, particular season. And we determined that we were going to uh, begin playing the kind of football that the Vikings were accustomed to playing. And so we set some goals for ourselves and we had new resolve and new determination. And uh, the next game we went out and we won handily and we won again. And we played the, um, the first time we played the Packers that season, we, we beat them handily. And it came down to the second to last game of the season. And we were playing these very same Green Bay Packers. And by the way, the Packers were leading our division at that time. And they were, you know, they were a decent team, not, not a great team by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we beat them handily in Green Bay the first time. And here it was now, you know, as I said, the, the second to last game of the season. And now we were playing them at Met Stadium. And I remember that week as I prepared for that game. I knew it very well could be the, one of the biggest games I would ever play in my entire football career. And I had played in some big ones, a couple uh, Rose Bowls and other big games. And I studied that game plan and that playbook about as, uh, as much as I've ever studied a playbook. Because I wanted to make sure that I had left no stone unturned, that I knew those Packer tendencies, that I knew that Packer game plan inside and out because of the enormity of this contest. If we could win this game, we would catch the Green Bay Packers, at least we would tie them, and then, you know, depending on what happened the last game of the season, it, we could be the Central Division champions for the fifth year in a row. Uh, beyond that, I, when I participated in practice, you know, I gave all that I had and my teammates did as well. You know, we felt we were as ready to play that game as ever. Well, then the game came, and uh, I remember waking up in a dumpy little Holiday Inn where we used to stay near Met Stadium and pulling the shades aside, looking outside, and noticing it was crystal clear and the sun was shining brightly. I thought, man, what a great day for football. Little did I know as a Californian, you know, in the upper Midwest in early December when it's crystal clear and the sun shining brightly, it's probably pretty cold. And that day went down as the coldest day ever played at Met Stadium. 
I think it was about five below um, in actual temperature and almost 45 below wind chill. And, uh, you know, for a guy from California who'd rarely seen 40 above as a low temperature, this was a shock to the system. In fact, that day I remember specifically what it felt like to have the mucus in your nose freeze. <laughs> but we got to the stadium, we taped our ankles, went over our pregame strategy, and, and as I sat in that locker room and looked in the eyes of my teammates that morning, there was a resolve and a determination that was so thick you could have cut it with a knife. And I was just convinced this was going to be a great and glorious day for the Vikings. Well, then the opening half kickoff took place. And, uh, you know, things didn't go as, as we had as we had hoped. You know, the ball did not uh, bounce our way. And uh, it, it was a tough, you know, hard-played half of football. And uh, we did score a touchdown. We, we held them scoreless. Uh, we expected to be ahead by more than seven to nothing by the time uh, we got to finish with the first half. But it was, this was good. This was a good start. We came in at halftime. We, we licked our wounds, went over our second half strategy. And again, this same commitment to detail and the same intensity was still etched in the faces of my teammates. And I was convinced that the seven to nothing lead which we had now was going to blossom into something much greater. But then came the second half. And I remember Tarkin going back to pass on our second series, throwing a little dump-off pass to Bill Brown. Bill was still playing fullback for us at that time, a great old Viking. And Bill catching the ball and weaving his way for first down yardage, getting hit from the blind side by Fred Carr, the big outside linebacker for the Packers. And Bill did something he rarely did. He fumbled the ball. The ball bounced right up in Fred Carr's arms. Down the near sidelines he went about 50 yards where he was eventually forced out of bounds inside the five-yard line, which set up the first Packer touchdown. It was no more than a couple series after that that Fran went back to pass on third and 12 through a 12-yard break-in pattern of John Gilliam. The ball was thrown just a little bit high, and normally a good receiver would jump up with his hands and catch the ball, but because it was, you know, 40 below windchill and no gloves in Bud Grant style and and uh, no feeling in those hands. You know, John tried to cradle the ball. He jumped up as high as he could, hit him in the shoulder pad, bounced up in the air, and Willie Buchanan, the fine rookie cornerback for the Packers, picked it off in full stride down that same sidelines he went, probably for 25 or 30 yards, where he was eventually forced out inside the 10-yard line, which set up the second Packer touchdown. And by now, that vaunted Packer running game, which was really all they had offensively. They didn't have any kind of a passing game, but they had a good running game with John Brockington and MacArthur Lane, and they began to grind out gains such as six yards, four yards, seven yards, nine yards, up and down the field, holding on to the ball, eating up the clock. And by the time the gun sound is signifying, of course, the end of the game, the final score read Green Bay 23, Minnesota 7. Well, there I remember standing on that field after the game, and by now, you know, Packer fans were streaming out of the um, out of the stadium, onto the field. Um, I used to think sometimes there are probably as many Packer fans in those Viking-Packer games as there were Viking fans. But uh, nevertheless, I, standing on that field, about as frustrated and discouraged as a young man could possibly be. Here it was perhaps the biggest game I would ever play in my entire Viking career. And here it was crucial that I play the very best game that I was capable of playing, especially as a middle linebacker. You know, who's responsible for making the calls and motivating the defense and, and uh, you know, plugging up the middle and so forth. 
And yet, as I had reviewed in my own mind at least that second half of performance, I felt it was probably the worst half of football I'd ever played. Now, there are probably other fellow defensive players that felt the same way, but that's certainly how I felt. And I felt the one thing I wanted to do was to get off that field and and get out of there, you know. Um, I, 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 by now, as I said, uh, you know, fans were coming on the field, and and uh, I just felt miserable. I felt horrible. And, um, you know, I, I remember turning to run off the field, and as I did, I bumped into something, and I continued to head for the exit. And just as I got to that exit, before you hit the tunnel that descends down into the bowels of the old Metrodome, I looked over my right shoulder, and probably 20 yards back, there was a figure prone. As my eyes focused more clearly, I noticed it was a wispy, white-haired lady who had to be 85 years old, if she had been a day, whom I had managed to knock flat on her back. And I thought, Lord, if things haven't been bad enough today. And I turned, and I began to jog toward her, and as I got closer, I noticed she was clad from head to toe in purple, wearing a big Minnesota Viking button on her lapel. And, of course, this complicated matters. If she'd been a Packer fan, no big deal, of course, but... Uh, <laughs> As a loyal Viking fan, I did feel an obligation to help her up, and I reached toward her, and I extended my arm. I said, ma'am, uh, please forgive me. It's been a long and terrible day. I wasn't looking where I was going. At least can I give you a hand up and, and help you up off the ground? She looked up at me with one of those penetrating gazes, which I'd seen so many times before from a certain Bud Grant, you know, that kind of icy blue stare which seems to go right through you to the back of your head. And I'll never forget her words as she very calmly said, why, that's okay, Seaman. Because I'm the first one you've knocked down all day long. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, things, things actually got worse. Uh, we ended up l- throwing another game away, the last game of the season, um, against the, the hapless San Francisco 49ers uh, out there in San Francisco. And so it was a miserable year. We finished 7-7. Seven and seven. And we had a team meeting again after after that last game, and we said, you know, this is it. We're not going to play like this ever again. And uh, the very next year, we ended up, um, you know, that year, for whatever reason, we played five preseason games, not six, won all five. Uh, we won nine straight regular season games and uh, until we finally had a hiccup. Uh, but ended up going 12-2 and two and uh, going into the Super Bowl, uh, going through the playoffs, into the Super Bowl, unfortunately, where we met a great Miami Dolphin football team and uh, didn't play so well there, but, but had a great year. And the next uh, several years were outstanding years as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, never got over the final hump, but, uh, but did get there three times uh, in my years. And it was a great place to play, a great place to be, some wonderful uh, memories and relationships that were built over time, as I've already alluded to, to, to many of them. So it's it's been uh, great to be uh, part of that great tradition. We just, uh, Vikings, as you may know, celebrated their 50 years of football and, uh, you know, the, having the privilege of being one of those, the, the, be on the, uh, selected to be on the 50-year team was, it was a great honor. And uh, we're just hoping now we can keep the team in Minnesota for another 50 years, hopefully. And, of course, all that's tied up in the, the whole stadium uh, discussion, as you probably know. Well, I told you a little about my background, uh, you know, growing up in Bakersfield, California, you know, a little, not a little town anymore, about 350,000. It's about as big as the state here, isn't it? No, not that big. <laughs> Half as big, maybe, as the state. 
But uh, Bakersfield is, is in the um, it's in farm country. It's in the San Joaquin Valley, and it's oil country too. In fact, big oil. There was a huge oil discovery back in the early part of the 20th century, and a lot of oil companies moved in. And uh, and by the way, it was also a, a place of, of significant immigration from uh, the Dust Bowl during the Dust Bowl years. And so a lot of uh, you say Arkies and Okies and Texans came and settled in the San Joaquin Valley. So you ended up with a um, blue-collar environment, a lot of, uh, you know, good, hard-working uh, people, often uh, very religious, uh, who love football, by the way. In fact, uh, believe it or not, my high school, the Bakersfield High School, has won more uh, high school football games than any other high school in the state of California, pretty big state, you know, 30-plus million people, and has more state championships than any other team uh, in California. So it's an unbelievable football tradition that I grew up in. Paul Briggs was a Hall of Fame coach. Um, uh, what, what, <laughs> having a, a mental block here. Frank Gifford was from my high school. So it was a tremendous football tradition that I, you know, was entered into as a high school student. But even before that, uh, I grew up in a home. Uh, my dad was a physician. And my mother was a good lady, but a woman who had some deep-seated emotional problems coming into that marriage and coming into that family life. Uh, ended up uh, drinking heavily by the time I reached uh, grade school. And uh, we had five kids in the family. And because of the alcoholic influence and, and other things, I think, that were going on in that family system, it was a uh, terribly dysfunctional environment. A lot of arguing and fighting and uh, very little nurturing, very little affirmation. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to grow up these days in any day, in, in any family situation. I, uh, I've got a belief that people come into the world with an innate sense of not knowing who we are. And, and part of the goal of, of family life is to, is to help a, a young child grow up to be a self-sustaining individual with a good self-worth and understanding of how they fit into not only the family life, but fit into culture. But we didn't have that in our family. And as a result, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of angst, a lot of insecurity uh, on the part of all five of the kids. A lot of sarcasm, a lot of put-downs and so forth, and, and as I said, very little nurturing. I never remember my mother or father telling me they loved me. But now, I, just given, you know, the, the, that was a time in... in um, I think the, the life of our, our national life in which um, men and women to some extent, but men played them pretty close to the vest. You know, you didn't reveal your emotions. You didn't uh, express tender words, certainly not to sons. You made it to daughters, but not to sons. And so that was kind of the, the, the era that I grew up in. But it was more than that, too. And as a result, I struggled very significantly as a young man with my identity, who I was, and did I really have value? What, did I have worth, and, and where did my security lie? God had given me some natural athletic ability, and my dad had played football both in high school and college, and, and he loved football, and so uh, it was very easy for me to fall into, into that pattern. And so as a young boy, I played, you know, pick up football, and as soon as there was organized football, I played, you know, one year of organized football before high school, and and then did well in high school, too. And, and so this became something in life that I could point to as a, 
instant source of success and achievement and affirmation. Uh, football became, uh, you might say, a bit of a crutch that I could lean on and depend upon uh, almost at any time uh, because of the success that I had in football. It was also a place where, you know, I wasn't an emotional person. We grew up in an environment where you didn't express your emotions at all. But football was a place you could express your emotions. In fact, uh, the more so, the better, you know, to... to uh, to meet a running back in the hole, you know, uh, and to express your emotions with all that you had was 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 a release in in some ways, a release that I didn't have in my family life, in my family setting. And so, in many ways, I felt like I was just kind of made for the game, and uh, and had a lot of success early on, and that that uh, helped to help me to develop an identity, if you will, that was really rooted in the success of my ability to play a kid's game. And ultimately, that's, that's what it is, and that's what it was. Um, also, I, you know, I'd grown up in an environment where uh, doing well academically was thought was uh, important and was emphasized. And so I had a sister that was a straight-A student. I was not a, you know, she, she never had a B uh, all the way from grammar school through high school. Now, I had several Bs, but... Uh, but also lots of A's sprinkled in there, too. And so I, I did well academically. Uh, socially, you know, when you're, you know, the uh, big man on campus and a high school football star, and I played basketball and baseball as well and did well in those sports, you know, I was, I was one of the cool kids, supposedly. Um, I didn't act that way in terms of my personality, but, but I was seen as one of the athletes, one of the better athletes in the school, and, and therefore... There was a certain added bit of security that I had, I, I felt, you know, because of this uh, being an important person by virtue of my success in athletics. It was about junior high, I think seventh grade, that I first began dating a, a young girl in those days, and her name was Linda, and we had a great relationship. We dated all the way through uh, junior high and then into high school. My senior year in high school, uh, after a basketball game, this would have been probably in uh, about this time of year, as a matter of fact. She was a cheerleader, and I was, a, you know, starting forward on the basketball team. This was after a game, and I had we had gone to the school dance that night, and I had taken her home, and we were parked outside of her house uh, talking, honestly, um, as, as we talked. Uh, I found out later that uh, she, like I, had grown up, uh, as as people of our generation did, Involved in a, a church, you know, most most people were connected to some kind of either Protestant or Catholic uh, Christian church. I had gone to the Episcopal Church in Bakersfield, and she had gone to um, I can't remember what church it was, but I know that senior year in high school, now she was involved, began to become involved in a, a group called Young Life, which is a national parachurch ministry. And through Young Life, she had come into what she described as a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that evening, she wanted to share that bit of news with me. And I remember as uh, we sat in that car outside of my car, outside of her house, uh, she started by saying something like, uh, um, you know, she, she felt she said something like, Jeff, I feel that the only way to live a truly purposeful, meaningful life as God intended is, is to know your creator, God, through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, a comment like that shouldn't have been offensive to me. As I said, I had grown up going to church. I don't know that I ever really connected with church or learned much there, but, but at least one would think that that shouldn't have been offensive to me. But it was offensive when I heard those words. 
because in many ways I had reduced Christianity to, to really a moral system, a set of do's and don'ts. And when I heard those words of hers, I thought it was in some way criticizing my life. And by the way, I thought of myself in those days as a moral person. You know, I had plenty of problems and weaknesses and so forth, but I think by virtue of my own pride, it was important to me to be seen as a moral person. And so when she said, Jeff, this is the way I interpreted her words, Jeff, I have something in my life which you don't have. And not only did I see myself as a moral person, I was a very competitive person. And I think it was my own insecurity in many ways that, that really inspired my competitiveness. And so I was angered by her words. And I told her, how dare you question my life? My life is equally as good and moral and meaningful as, as most of my peers, which it probably was, which isn't saying much. But then she hit me with a crowning blow. She said, why then, Jeff, are you living your life? For what purpose or toward what ultimate end? And men and boys, it was as though she had taken a two-by-four and hit me right between the eyes. Because I had no idea why I was living my life. Um, I said something like, well, I'm trying to somehow make the world a better place, but I knew that was garbage. You know, as I think back on my life in retrospect, if there was any purpose in that life, it was simply to medicate some of the personal pain I felt within because of my own insecurity, my own lack of sense of who I was and where my true value and purpose in life really was. And so I sent her back into the house and I drove home that evening and I began to think to myself, deep in my own soul, well, Jeff, why are you here? What is your purpose in life? And what is going to happen the day when you pass on into the next life, whatever that may be? I had never given that one single thought for 18 years until that evening when I drove home that night and began to contemplate my own mortality and this idea, what does happen when I finally pass on, when I finally expire? I had no answers. Well, I soon rationalized away my girlfriend's words, and I went away to Stanford the following year on an athletic scholarship in football. And I took some courses at Stanford that freshman year that got me thinking more deeply about the great questions of the human experience. And there are basically three questions, philosophers tell us, that have to do with, with humanity, the, the great questions of, of, hu of humankind. And the first one is, where did we come from? You know, I, I, was, I believe that somehow there was a God in the universe. There was a, a personal God who created people like you and me. I didn't have a problem with that. I felt that God created the world as we observe it. In those days, and still true today in college, you know, you're taught, you're, you're basically, uh, you're the end product of an impersonal process of time, chance, and natural selection. It's really nature that created you. There, there isn't, isn't a God that created you. I didn't buy that. I felt there was a personal God in the universe. So that was the first question I faced in some of these classes I was taking at Stanford. The second was, what is your purpose here on earth, if any? Back in those days in college, there was a philosophy that was uh, prominent called existentialism. And it basically, I'm going to kind of um, not do justice to it, but it was this idea that, that there is no purpose in life and there is no ultimate meaning in life. And so it's up to humanity, people like you and me, to, to simply decide what we're going to give our lives to. So you decide what your life is going to be and, and live toward that end, whatever that decision is, live toward that end with, with passion and commitment. 
even though there's no ultimate purpose behind it. One choice is equally as valid as the next choice. That was the philosophy in so many ways, so many words of existentialism. Well, I believe there had to be something more than that. Some, certainly something more than just kind of blindly choosing what you're going to give your life to. There had to be some kind of track to run on that, that I was made for. And yet I didn't know essentially what that was. And finally, the last question was, uh, where are we going when this life is over? When we breathe our last breath, is there some existence for us, a heaven or a hell or um, moksha or something that would uh, transcend this physical life in which we live? And aren't those the big questions that people still ask them today? Well, I didn't know the answer to these questions. Um, again, as I said, I thought there was something bigger than I was, some supreme being or supreme essence, but who this God was, I had, I had no real knowledge. Well, I remember um, uh, it wasn't long after that that, um, in fact, I, I suffered a very severe knee injury in our second game of the season against the UCLA Bruins. And in those days, you played just four freshman games, and this was the second freshman game we were playing at Spalding Field in Los Angeles. And the nature of this injury was such that there was speculation, actually not how well I'd ever play again. But as far as the orthopedic surgeon was concerned, uh, it was determined I would never play again. In fact, to this day, as far as I know, this was the worst injury that he had ever seen or operated on. So the question was rather how well I'd ever run again or participate in any menial athletic endeavor. You can imagine how this would have impacted me, or impacted you if you had been in my shoes. Because even though I would have never used these words or terms, I had made football the god of my life. It was the, the one thing that, that I could always depend and rely upon. That one thing that always provided a source of affirmation and success, and, and onward and upward, year after year after year. And here for the first time, I was faced with losing it permanently. Having to look in the mirror and say, Jeff, who are you now without football? Where is your identity? Secondly, like a lot of Stanford freshmen, I, as I said, I'd done well in high school academically. Well, here I was now in the midst of all these gifted, talented, brilliant students. And, and I was at, at very best mediocre, at very best, uh, in the midst of these brilliant kids. And finally, no, no longer the big fish in the, in the little pond as I had been in high school. Now, you know, just another guy on campus. And, and all of this all um, began to have a deep impact on, my, on my, my soul, on my sense of identity. Tremendously discouraging time. And I remember I began to think deeply about the nature of my life and and who I was and where I was going and what was, what was my hope. And it wasn't long after that that I received a lengthy letter from this crazy girlfriend of mine who was going to another college, University of California at Davis. And she wrote me a long letter that, uh, um, that I received. And uh, I remember reading the letter and I was deeply touched by her words. Normally I would have been very offended by them because she... She began to say in that letter how, how much she cared about me, but she also cared very much about my relationship with God. And she could see the fact that I was uh, struggling deeply in my life, and she wanted me very much to begin to enjoy the same kind of peace and purpose and meaning in life that her relationship with Christ had brought to her. 
And as I said, normally I would have been angry and defensive and I would have dismissed the letter. But, but for some reason, that, uh, that day when I received that letter, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't help it, but begin to think about my own life. Well, I finally uh, fell asleep that evening and I was awake the next door by, next morning by a knock on the door by a visitor who belonged to, of all things, a campus Christian organization. Now, this is the next day. It's the day after the letter. And he had come on a random door visit to talk to my roommate, as far as he knew. And, of course, in those freshman dorms in those days, you know, you're, uh, the beds are about arm length apart, and he's talking to my roommate. I'm still lying in bed. And I heard some of the very same words and phrases I'd read in my girlfriend's letter just the night before. I couldn't believe this was happening. Either this was the biggest coincidence that ever come down the pike, or else this was God's divine appointment, not for my roommate, but for me. And I cornered this guy before I could leave the room, and I said, Gary, for a year and a half now I've heard about Jesus Christ in a way I've never understood before. I said, Gary, how is it that one can come into this personal relationship with him? How do you have a personal relationship with someone you can't see or hear or touch? And this young guy said, Jeff, it was actually Jesus Christ who demonstrated the way 2,000 years ago. He said, Jeff, it's not a matter first of trying to clean up your life or to make yourself somehow presentable before a holy God. He said, because, Jeff, you could never do that. In fact, there has never been a man or woman who walked the face of this earth who was ever able to come into a relationship with God based upon his own good works, except for one. One was able to do that, and that was Jesus Christ himself. But no one else. He said, no, Jeff, it's rather a matter of believing who Jesus Christ said he was. God incarnate, or God in human flesh, who came into this world to die a death on a Roman cross for the sin of humanity. In fact, more than that, Jeff, to die on a Roman cross for your sin as well. By believing that he rose from the dead, that he lives today, and by personally committing my life to him, by receiving him into my life. Well, this was new revelation to me. These were things I had never heard before. You know, I'd sat at least in my church for I don't know how many years, and I'll confess, I probably wasn't the best listener, But these were things that were new to me, that were completely contrary to what I thought and understood. And he left my room soon after that, and he left me with a little booklet, and I I read through it. And uh, I did something I'd never done before, and, and that is I bowed my head, and I did a little talking with Christ. I said, Jesus, I don't know what in the world do you have planned for me. But I know that I've tried it now for 18 years, and it's clear to me, and I'm sure even clearer to you, that I have made a complete mess of things. I ask you now to come into my life and to make me the kind of man that you intended for me to be. Lord, I realize there are a lot of changes that need to happen uh, to Jeff Seaman, and it's going to be by your grace that I ask you to come into my life and begin making those changes. And men and boys, I really believe it was at that moment in my life that I removed myself from the, from the headship of that life and allowed Jesus Christ to take up residence as my Lord and, as the Bible says, my Savior. 
to have that rightful place of authority in my life, that, that I would yield and submit my own, my own will and my own life and my own purpose to His Lordship and His grace uh, in my life. Now, this was many years ago. And I will say that, uh, you know, life is difficult for all of us. You know, I went on to have a, a good NFL career and I had, you know, ended up uh, marrying and having four kids and I'm going on nine grandkids and I've had many blessings in life. Uh, many of the joys that this life has to offer and I'm thankful for them, but it hasn't been without some struggle and trial and disappointment and, and unfaithfulness. I don't mean marital unfaithfulness, but unfaithfulness to God and not being the kind of follower of Christ that I really wish I could have been or should have been. But I thank God for His faithfulness and His forgiveness over all these years. And as a result, God has given me uh, an opportunity to speak in settings like this and to share this story, this, this simple story of what God has done through my life. That day, when that fellow came by my dorm room, and he handed me that little booklet that I read through. Um, something happened at that point. Um, and I understood as I read through that little simple gospel message about why Jesus Christ had come. And I felt a little ashamed that I lived for 18 years and never, never understood these simple truths. And as I prayed that morning for Jesus to come into my life, it was as though time stood still for a moment. You know, as I said, I'm not a real emotive kind of guy and uh, maybe not in touch with my feelings as much as a lot of people are, but there was something going on that morning as I was reading that gospel message, as I was listening to this guy talk, as I ultimately prayed to receive Christ into my life, that, that God convinced me that, uh, that this, was, this was something beyond the norm. This was something... Uh, unique, something God-centered and God-oriented. And uh, I can never deny what happened that day, and my life has never been the same ever since. As I said, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Just ask my kids or wife. They'll, they'll confirm that. But, but a vastly different person, a vastly different person than I was uh, those years previously. I think so much of it goes back to this issue of identity, by the way, which is something that a lot of men in particular, and boys, struggle with. Where is my security ultimately? Where is my worth and value in this world? And so often early on in life, I think we, we have this in our own soul by nature, but it's certainly affirmed in our culture, that your value is as good as whatever you can produce whether it be monetarily or whether it be success in athletics as it was for me or whether it be, you know, establishing a good business or maybe even being a good father or husband. As wonderful as all those things are. But this, the Bible talks about a value and a worth that is given to you and that we can receive by faith. This is a value and a worth that is based upon God's view of each one of his children. A kind of love, a kind of acceptance, a kind of commitment that God has for us, unlike anybody else. And I've come to believe and understand that that's the ultimate foundation of the right kind of worth and value that God intends for us to have. A value that no one can ever take away from us. We cannot earn it in this world as much as we try. You know, I played football with some of the most successful guys you could ever imagine, and yet...
in spite of all their success, and I could tell because I lived around a lot of them for a decade or better, they were not secure people. Their worth, their value was about as good as the last game they played. Put two bad games in a row and all of a sudden, you know, this, uh, the security's gone. Is that how God intends for us to live? Is that how God intends for our value to be understood and lived out? I don't think so. For some of you, this is old news. You know, you've, you've heard this many times before. You've experienced it perhaps in your own life. And, and I would say, praise God. Praise God if you, too, have experienced what this is to, to know the Lord in a personal way and to feel that personal sense of security and worth and value that he, he gives us by faith. But there very well could be a, a man or two or a boy or two here this evening, and I suspect there probably is, where... You've not worked all this out yet in your own life. That you're not sure if you really have this relationship with Jesus Christ that I've spoken about. Maybe there's a general belief. Maybe there's, you know, you're not an atheist or agnostic, but, but perhaps you've never personalized this for yourself. You have a sense that God loves you. The Bible affirms that, doesn't it? You know, one of the great verses in the Bible, John 3:16, for God so Love the world, and you know, you are part of the world. God loves his creation, he loves you, and he's affirmed that over and over in the Bible, and and maybe you have a sense or or an understanding of that. You probably also have a, a sense that you're imperfect, right? That you have problems, you have weaknesses, morally and otherwise. You know, the Bible says that's sin. Most people in their heart of hearts know of their own fatal flaws, their own Weaknesses, and I certainly know mine and you know yours. And the Bible says that every man or woman who has ever created except one has struggled with imperfection and sin. And of course, the scripture says that's why Jesus came. That was his mission to come into the world for one thing. Not to be a good role model, although he was that. But rather to be a substitute. In the Jewish understanding of the sacrificial lamb who was given for the Jewish people on the Day of Atonement so they could experience oneness with God, that the sin of the people would be placed on that lamb, the lamb would be slain, and there could now be relationship, harmony between God and man. Well, Jesus came, as you, I'm sure you know, as the sacrificial lamb, that now God would send his own son to bear the, our own sin, that the Bible says literally our sin by faith is transferred to the body of Jesus. Jesus is put to death. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. And if you believe that by faith, your sins too are transferred to the body of Jesus. And it's as though when Jesus died, your sin was paid for. And then finally, the last part of this good news is that Jesus didn't stay in the grave but he rose from the dead, that he lives today. And the access God has given to us is an access that that comes by faith, by believing. In fact, the Bible says in John 1.12, to as many as have received him, to them he gave the right and privilege to become children of God. So there's an, it's an active verb, to as many as have, have, 
have received him into our lives. So we need to take hold of Jesus by faith. And as it's understood for 2,000 years of Christian history, this is as we receive him into our lives by faith, by a prayer. The Bible indicates that our words aren't so important. It's rather the attitude of our heart. Are we willing to submit our own lives to the lordship and the headship and the love of Jesus Christ himself? Lord, I'm not going to live for me anymore. I'm going to live for you. Lord, I realize I have all kinds of issues and problems in my life, and I'm going to give those to you. I thank you that you've died on the cross for those sins. And I ask you now to come into my life and to make me the kind of man that you intended for me to be. Men, I think that's the beginning of this new relationship with God through Christ that God has ordained, who he has given to us. So, as I said before, some of you, this is new information. Some of you may have sat in churches, you know, for decades. And it's kind of missed you, as it missed me for all those years. And, you know, sometimes God has got to uh, knock on the door of our life. He begins to tap, and then he knocks harder, and then he raps on the door, and sometimes shakes the door. And maybe there's something going on in your life that feels very much like that door is being shaken, like it's... Someone's pounding on that door, and sometimes the pounding is nothing less than to get our attention, to bring us to the end of ourselves and recognize of our desperate need for the Lord. And so in many ways, um, those struggles in life can be uh, what C.S. Lewis called a severe mercy. It's ultimately a mercy, because what it does is it, it, it elevates the need that we have, the need that we have for God. And so maybe he's rapping on the door of your life right now. And I'd say, if he is, let him in. Let him demonstrate his love and his power and his compassion and his forgiveness and his mercy in your life, as he has in my life. So what I'd like to do, men, as I close uh, this evening is to offer a simple prayer, very much like the prayer that I prayed so many years ago. And uh, what I'd like you to do, if you feel God leading you to do this, is simply to bow your heads and silently, as I pray aloud, you're silent, I pray aloud, make my words your words, and uh, invite Jesus Christ to take up a place in your life this evening. Again, I'm not going to ask for anyone raising hands or coming forward or anything like that, just in the quietness of your own heart. I'll pray a simple prayer. You pray silently as I pray and make my words your words. And uh, if you feel God leading you, invite Jesus Christ to take up residence in your life. If you're Either you know you're outside of a relationship with Christ or you're not sure. Maybe you don't know. I'd say if you're in either of those two categories and you feel God leading you, f- uh, pray silently as I pray aloud. Let's bow as we close. Lord Jesus, I need you. And I confess at times this is hard for me to admit. But I ask you now to come into my life and to make me the kind of man that you intended for me to be. Lord, I realize I've lived so much of my life for myself. I've done wrong things, both to other people and I know ultimately, Lord, to you too. 
But I thank you that you died on the cross for my sin. And you paid the price that I deserve to pay. And I thank you by virtue of that and your death and resurrection, Lord, that you've offered forgiveness and mercy to me. So I receive you into my life, Lord. I ask you to become my Savior and my Lord. I realize there are a lot of changes that need to take place in my life. And Lord, by your grace, I'm going to trust you to make those changes. But thanking you for coming into my life now as you promised. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, men and boys, if you did pray that prayer and it was truly the desire of your heart, you can be assured on the timeless promise of Jesus himself that he did exactly what he said he would do. Uh, The promise that uh, if we receive him into our lives, he will be with us even to the end of the age. And so what I would encourage you to do if you make this commitment tonight, to tell someone else, tell someone else that you know that has got a living relationship with God. And I know it would not only be an encouragement to them, but they could be a tremendous source of help to you, too. What do I do next? That's always a good question. Because there are things to do. There are steps that you can take. Not, not to earn God's love or God's acceptance, but just so you can grow. Grow in understanding and, and uh, grow in terms of, you know, your own uh, knowledge of the Bible. Uh, grow in your own knowledge of God. Uh, there's some important steps to take. And I know there are lots of men here tonight who would love to help you make those, those changes and to take those steps. So, Well, let me tell you, it was great to be with you. I, I always love to come to South Dakota. Uh, the, the pheasants are fine, but the people are even better. And uh, that's been true every time I've been here. So uh, thank you very much. Great to be with you. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to have you here, and I'm of the generation that does remember when you played ball. So we're going to have, uh, after this is over, you're dismissed to go to the fellowship hall, and there's dessert there, and you're welcome to stay as long as you'd like. It's good to have you here tonight. I just want to tag on to what Jeff said here tonight as he closed this. Um, A couple of things. One, he said a divine appointment. I remember having that divine appointment when I was 18 years old. I also remember hearing some things like he said for the first time that made sense to me. I didn't grow up in the church. And they talked about Jesus in a way that I'd never heard before. And I prayed a prayer like he talked about tonight um, in my high school auditorium. And after I did that, I went home and I remember laying in my bed that night, my mother coming in to see me, and I told her about it. And uh, that that's maybe something that's happened for you tonight for the first time it just made sense you felt like he was speaking right to you tonight that's what it felt like to me that night and then i was trying there i was the only person there they were speaking directly to me and uh, it wasn't jeff speaking if that's the case but it's god speaking to you and i hope he did and i hope you responded if you haven't in the past and uh, there's lots of people that like to hear that I'd like you to tell them about that you may know somebody already they want to tell But uh, we'd welcome um, talking to you about it if you'd like to do that. But we're going to pray. It's been good to have you here tonight. I think you're here because God wanted you to be here. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed and uh, to the fellowship hall. And you're welcome to greet Jeff here tonight.
Father, we're grateful for your goodness and faithfulness. I, I sensed, Lord, that you were among us here tonight. And I think there were um, some in this crowd that may have felt like you were speaking directly to them, just like Jeff felt that way uh, in his life, and I felt that way a number of years ago. Lord, I'm grateful that, that you work in our lives and you're faithful when we, when we ask you, Lord. When we ask you for, for bread, you don't give us a stone. You, you honor those heart cries, and I believe you honored them tonight. And we just thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Good to have you, and uh, you're dismissed to the fellowship hall or to greet Jeff or whatever. Thanks for coming tonight.